0: What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. What's happening, man?
1: In the words of E40, my friend, I am sick with it. But uh, you know, Sick
0: with it literally, right?
1: Literally, literally. If I sound like Macy Gray, that is why, but I'm on the... Uh,
0: <laughs> I'm you, on- already, you always sound like Barry White on Brandy, I mean, with <laughs> cigars. So, I mean, like... <laughs>
1: Man, I haven't had a cigar in years, but uh, that's why are you gonna put
0: that on Macy Gray? like,
1: <laughs> oh, yo, listen, I I was just talking. I was I, I said to you on our last episode. I spent um four days, three four days in Chicago, and I was with one of my oldest and best friends in the world, and we were reminiscing on all the concerts. You know, we were, talked about the loss of Dave, and you know, he and I went to a De La concert when we were just like you know, 15, 16 years old. But one of the first times my friend and I ever hung out. Um, <laughs> embarrassing admit, but like it was a Macy Gray concert, and I always remember because oddly enough, it was. I was like,
0: 14. "Wait, this is a dude."
1: This is a dude, man.
0: So you, yeah. you and a guy went on a Macy. There were. <laughs>
1: listen there were other people there let me let let the record show i
0: mean there's nothing wrong with it like you know like just you
1: know know, it's like when you go to the movies with a friend and you leave a seat empty between like you and i have never seen a movie together but i guarantee you if you and i go to the movies we will not sit right next to each other
0: yo the craziest thing my guy uh my college roommate and i went to see key sweat in concert right (laughs) And, uh, you know, Keith Sweat got the new Jack Swing thing and everything. And, but, yeah. but the headliner was Freddie Jackson. Okay. And when Freddie Jackson came on, we felt mad awkward. So we ended up literally crawling out of the theater. It was really? Wild. Yeah.
1: That's hilarious. Whenever I hear the name Freddie Jackson, I just think of that Chris Tucker joke in Friday, Janet Jackson, more like Freddie Jackson.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. yo, it's been a hard week, right? Like, um, I will say that Jake and I have been working on something that we think is going to be massive. Can't give details. We'll be on the lookout in April for a partnership that we have that we think is going to be gigantic and uh, the heads are going to love. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely been behind the scenes, pretty taxing. You know, uh, our workload has been intense, no complaints, just acknowledgement. Uh, you know, often, when you're doing what you love, it doesn't feel like work, even if it is intense. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But yeah, how are you feeling, man?
1: I mean, it's funny you say that because, you know, shout out to large professor. You feel like a mad scientist like you. You, I would say these are back to back 80 hour weeks and maybe closer to 100 because obviously you and I have other things that, that we have going on and families and, you know, I'm in the process of getting like crazy stuff. And, you know, even me being sick, I'm like, you know, I've been sleeping five, six hours a night. And when you're working on something exciting, um, it's not even just being tired. I don't know about you, but I often find like I go to bed and my mind is racing because there's so much adrenaline and there's so much excitement and creativity. And it's been just that. And, um, you know, my lady had a cold and, and, you know, I got it now. But in a way, um, I'm grateful that it's happening right now because this weekend, I have a lot to do as I'm sure you do as well. And I'm like, you know what? It's motivation to hunker down it's still March. It's still like, it's raining right now in Philly. Um, so it's the perfect time to kind of get some great stuff over the finish line. So that's how I feel. How about you?
0: Yeah, I, I feel you. Like um, I woke up a couple nights ago, like three 30 in the morning and my mind, you know, just started racing about all this stuff that's going on. And I was up for two hours, you know, just laying in bed, tossing and turning, trying to like meditate, trying to like quiet my mind, but couldn't stop, man. Can't stop, won't stop. Uh, So yeah, I totally feel you on that. Um, Before we get into it, just a reminder to folks, if you like what you hear, please like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell, whatever. Reviews, uh, whatever, yeah. Whatever, comments. We've been uh, trying to be more responsive in comments, anything. uh, We always appreciate it. Ali uh, also suggests I've been lately listening to podcasts on one and a half to two and a half speed or two speed, like, and, and listening to the playback for this in order to like lay out the notes and everything. I got to say that Jake and I are, I find us to be far more entertaining on two X than we are on one X. Neither one of us is the fastest speaker, but like, yo, it is hype. It's not chipmunk. Like Like Jake has still got the Barry white, where I'll say Macy Gray in his voice, but our energy is off the charts. It's like we each had like eight espressos. So like you know, even if you try that just for a few minutes, I listen, man.
1: I got a cup of coffee right now that my friend Aaron gave me, and it's got my name on it, which probably shows up backwards on the screen. So yeah, I get I get stoned on caffeine oftentimes before we tape these because I never want to sound sleepy.
0: That's dope. That's dope. Well, yo, we got a lot to talk about this week. Um, you know, every week we really try and step back not get caught up in the cycle and chasing, you know, it just gets really mundane and I think leads down a path. We don't want to go. We want to truly deliver the ambrosia. And this week we had something that is an extremely rare occurrence, which is Jay Cole did an interview, right? Like what's what's the last Cole interview you can remember?
1: Uh, he did, correct me if I'm wrong. He did Nardwar like at the tail end of 2020, it would have been 2021 because out of that is when we learned that, Ian, there's a story on AFH about this. Um, it was actually like Cole mentioning to um, Dr. Dre, right? Like through some go-betweens, through some mutual parties that he was interested in signing Kendrick Lamar. Um, and in classic Nardwar fashion, you know, he was pulling out all the stops, you know, pulled out things early in J. Cole's career. And he talked about that. And he also spoke about um, even recording in the studio that like his career kind of began. And that's one of those things that's like, um, you know, Ludacris or Tyler Perry driving the cars that they had when they became famous or back when they didn't have money and, and power and fame. Um, you know, J Cole is one of those dudes who kind of puts himself in that mindset. So I would say that's the last interview of scale. I can remember. Can you think of one more recently?
0: Nah, not one more recently, man. And and I really struggle to think of the last one before that, to me, it feels almost like Angie Martinez, um, uh, And that was a long time ago, like, you know, several years ago. There's one, I think, in between, right, where he's at a house or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, he did the one where he sat down with Lil Pump as they were, like, going back and forth. And that, I mean, that wasn't, like, an interview, but it was, like, a documented conversation. There's been some documentaries. There was the one on his love of basketball, which ties into the one we're about to speak of. And then he did did a really good interview in, I want to say, 2018 with my man Paul Cantor. And I forget, I, was that for Vulture or something like that? And that was a print interview, but it yeah. was a really, really, really good one. But yeah, Angie is the last time um, that I can remember Cole sitting down, like No Shade on Nardwar, but Nardwar has a very formatted interview. Angie was the last time they were sitting, if I'm not mistaken, at at, at Salam Rami's house at the Grand Piano. And uh, it was on video. We covered it on the site. And that was kind of like a hip hop personality doing a and a with Cole.
0: Yeah, that's the one last one I can think of, man. And it's part of a growing trend. You know, we've seen that with Kendrick. He did a really short interview behind backstage with a a little girl. uh, I think it was 13, 12 or 13 uh, for Miss Morale right after getting off stage from a concert. He did a print, to your point, interview uh, much later in the cycle, I think, uh, just a a few months ago. So, you know, we covered that on AFH. Yeah, eight months later. Drake has not done an interview uh, that I recall since that Rap Radar interview back in 2019, 2020, whatever it was. There's a trend where artists don't need to talk to the media anymore. They go straight to fans. They do stuff through social media. To your point about J. Cole, they'll release a documentary. You know, they want to control their own narrative. Um, I think a lot of times it's because. You know, when you do interviews, inevitably people will take a, a snippet and do clickbait and, you know, twist your words around, take them out of context and all that stuff. But why do you why do you think it is that that people have fallen back from media? I mean, I think that's just it. And I think it's gotten
1: way worse. And you also realize, I mean, Jay-Z made the point, you know, I think around the blueprint era of like, you know, I am making you dollars like I am if i do an interview and i'm a star of drake or j cole or kendrick's level like that can help make your year a whole different year financially um so at the same time what are you doing when i'm not giving you an interview what are you doing for the artists that i've signed what are you and i love that because instead of kind of strongholding um media publications into being super favorable which when i started out in my career i can remember the the bigger companies the bigger record labels and crews like They would sometimes, you know, try to pressure you to do more coverage for a C, a B, C or D level artist to make sure you got the A. And I think all publications, even I mean, far beyond hip hop, have had to deal with that. And now it's just a free for all. And these artists, um, A, I don't think they want to be used that way. And B, it's the it's the kind of conversation, you know, Um, I think that if you're an artist, you enjoy maybe talking to a Nardwar because he's not going to ask you traditional, like he's not going to ask you about a beef. Um, But at the same time, Nardwar got Jay-Z talking about Jazz O before they reunited simply by pulling out the record. So it still works on that level. But you're not sitting with somebody that's dying to get the ace out of the hole um, and get you to say something controversial or be totally fan out of like, yo, J. Cole, what did you mean when you said, which some artists love, but I have to believe that other artists don't enjoy those type of questions. They really like letting um the songs just just kind of you know fall where they lie or lie where they fall um yeah and I I think that that way when you're having a conversation with somebody out of industry you can talk about bigger more abstract or, or more applicable things to your career your success or your art
0: yeah I agree with you and I think that's why Cole chose to do the interview that he did The most recent one is with Bob Myers, who interestingly is the GM, the general manager of the Golden State Warriors. So uh, it's for ESPN, and it's uh, for a show that Bob Myers has. I had never heard about it until this, but it's called Lead by Example. And he sits down and talks with notable figures. A lot of them are basketball-related, obviously. But he sat down with Cole because there is a a, a legit basketball tie. you know. And the first half or so of the interview – is about J, uh, J. Cole pursuing his basketball dreams, you know, um, and he talks a lot about success and that's the part I want to do a deep dive on. But, you know, some of the things that he, he talks about um, leading up to that are, you know, he started off with basketball dreams and, um, you know, and watching some other interviews that we'll discuss A lot of artists start off that way. A lot of people start off that way. You know, uh, my son wants to be, you know, professional um, ball player. And, you know, I think lots of people do. But Cole was good. You know, uh, he got cut from his team a couple of times in high school. like Michael Jordan worked his way up to varsity and then went to St. John's. And many people probably thought he did that in order to be close to basketball. But he reveals in the interview that he went there because St. John's is in New York. he wanted to be somewhere close to the the mecca of hip-hop because he really had tucked away dreams about being a rapper and so uh you want to talk a little bit about that
1: yeah i um i think that part is really interesting you know i have some friends um that that actually knew jermaine loosely at that time and one of my one of my you know best friends steve i think lived on the same floor or floor above but i remember they had a a mutual friend who Damon Scott, who later became the editor in chief at complex and now works at Dreamville. Like all of those St. Joe, St. John's kids, excuse me, St. Joe's being close to Philly, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're in Queens. So you are just a few train stops away from all the record labels, all the, you know, gatherings and, and J Cole and I are, you know, within two or three years of each other of age. So at that time, you know, you had a lot of just like gatherings and pop up events. So if you're going to be in a place um, to be famous and, you know, to get discovered and get your music in the right hands, New York in the early to mid two thousands is a hundred. I can't think of a better place. I think it's better than LA, Chicago, Atlanta, especially if you're that age and don't have a car and you want to hang out outside of SOBs or hang out outside the studios. It just makes a lot of sense. And on top of the fact, you know, Jermaine Cole was a smart dude and and St. John's is a very good school. And, you know, if you're a basketball fan, that's a great place to be as well.
0: For sure. For sure. New York City is just not bad to be in in general. So, you know, one of the things he talks about, though, is the notion of delusion. He believes that you have to be deluded, you know, intentionally, purposefully in order to achieve a certain level of success. Uh, You know, when I was a BT, we did this show called BT Honors, and we uh, gave this award called the Visionary Award to Barry Gordy, founder of Motown. He gets on stage and he says, for me, being a visionary is proving to the world that you're not crazy. And when you step back and think about it, if you're going to do something new, especially something that is going to be culture defining, uh, you know, change the course of literally the world you have to believe and say things that sound crazy to other people because they haven't happened yet. And so you're, you're you're spending your time proving to the world and maybe even yourself that you're not crazy. And so I really like that, that Cole talks about delusion as one of the secrets to a success. But the flip side of that is that when you delude yourself or you set up those kind of grand expectations, you also put enormous pressure on yourself. And one of the things that I thought resonated for me in the interview was that he talked about how He really didn't feel like he was succeeding. Like he didn't feel like he had his championship run until 2014 Forest Hills Drive, which is his third album. He had two albums out before that. Relatively successful, right? You don't get to do a third album unless you have some success with the first two. Yeah. But he talked about the pressure he was feeling around those first two albums. And there were enormous expectations around this guy. This guy is Jay-Z's first signing, if I remember correctly. or Definitely the first rapper uh, that he signed.
1: At Roc Nation.
0: At Rock Nation, yeah. at Rock Nation, yeah. Clearly, you know, Jay had signed tons of people before that at Rockefeller, but at Rock Nation, this is his first signing. Uh, there are huge expectations. He had put out the warm up, which for me, back in two thousand nine, restored my faith in hip hop. I'd stepped away, like you know, um, from hip hop. That you know, the stuff that was popular at the time, it was mostly Ye and Ross was popping, and Lil Wayne was popping, and things like that. But it wasn't anything that really drew me in like substantively. But when I heard the warm up and the hunger and the lyrical, like, you know, uh, dexterity, it was cold that really brought me back and like reignited my love for hip hop. And so um, as I was watching this interview, he talked about the doubt that he had. And it reminded me that, you know, back at South by Southwest in 2013, we had a a Music Matters showcase um, and it was Big Sean, um, Marsha Ambrosius, Dom Kennedy, Jay Cole, and like a bunch of other super dope artists. I think Wale was there. And afterwards, we were all hanging out downstairs. There's like a VIP like um, lounge downstairs in this club. And I remember seeing Cole, and he was kind of hanging his head low. And I was like, "Yo, man, like, um, you got to remember who you are." Like I said, you're Young Simba. Like I mean, and then I told him the story that I you just said that. Beautiful. Yeah, I tell, yeah. and I told him the story that I just told you about how he truly, like, restored my love for hip-hop. And I could see, I highly doubt he remembers this, but I could, I could see then that the words resonated with him. And, you know, um, it's amazing that, you know, shortly thereafter, obviously nothing to do with me, but I'm sure a ton of people were saying similar things to him, and eventually he said it to himself. But a year later, he came out with what many still consider to be his magnum opus
1: meaning uh 2014 forso drive
0: exactly yep. yeah
1: i mean it's interesting so you know that point that he makes i love that because i will tell you and you know my journey with j cole begins around 2009 i would say maybe 2010 um really like i remember hearing him um on the feature with miguel that song i can't think of the title of it but you I can hear the beat Power Power no trip. the first one the first oh uh,
0: oh uh yeah doom, doom, doom. All, all i wanted you all i wanted that, you yeah yeah, I wanted, yeah 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 um and i remember riding him in,
1: in in my truck in philly and hearing that like you know that like seven at seven like make it or break it type thing it was cosmic kev or somebody and they played that record and the beat had me and i'm i was a fan of miguel at the time and Cole had that distinct voice so boom that was one the second was lights please um you know, which just a great record. I think that was on the mixtape you're talking about. Yeah, the warm up. Yeah. It was on the warm up. And yeah. And then when it really crystallized for me was 2010. Um, he had that feature verse on the Reflection Eternal album where it was him, you know, Talib Kwali, Most Def, Yasin Bey, J Electronica. I think it's called It's Just Begun, or it's, um, I think that's the name of the record. And I every one of them. I mean, it's a murderer's row of great verses. And Cole, um, you know, at that time, I was like, "Okay, like you're good, but how are you gonna how are you really gonna like you know make an impact in this game?" And that verse is incredible. He hangs in there with most Talib and Jay electronica. um, but at that same time, it was funny. I went to see Jay in October of two thousand and nine in the blueprint three tour, and Jay Cole performed, and I, I think I said this on a past episode. They were still putting up chairs. You know the lights are full the way all the way on. I saw it in Baltimore, and um you know, J. Cole had, like, the worst possible time to perform. He was before Wale, before Tabby Bonet, um, you know, like, and he he worked that crowd, and I can't say that he got them, but he still was out there and gave it his all, um, and then, you know, his first album dropped, and I got the chance, to, it's funny, I'm I'm sitting in my basement with my records, and I think I showed you when uh, when you visited last year, but I have a assigned, um, I think it's lights, please, uh, like Christmas note from Jay Cole. Where he's like, thanks for all your support. Um, and just like you with be like, I don't, I don't know that I did anything, but we covered him a lot when I was at hip hop DX, even I think ahead of his rock signing. But when that album came out whole world, I thought it wasn't, I thought it was fine. You know, I thought it had some really cool songs on it, but I didn't think it was among the best albums that year. I did like born sinner i thought that the, that because that dropped on the same day as um yeezus and mac miller's watching movies with the sound off and i thought that it was a level up for him but you're absolutely right not until 2014 with the you know ironically titled 2014 forest hills drive did i realize that all of that potential could, could culminate on one album and i love that j cole said this in this interview because so many artists would have just accepted working with Jay Z, so many artists would have just accepted, you know, having a hit on the radio or putting out a noteworthy album. But Jay Cole held himself to a standard, and even for him to admit that in this interview, it, it, it's kind of like they had to dra- Bob had to drag that out of him a little bit because he is so humble and so focused.
0: Yeah, you know, I was just I was just flat out disappointed with the first two albums. You know, there were songs that I liked, "Can't Get Enough" and "Crooked Smile." but generally I didn't think they delivered on the potential that I heard on the warm-up. And it was interesting when I, when I reflect on that conversation we had, I remember one of the pressures he had and he talked about this very vocally in the press too, was that, you know, he, he had a lot of pressure to deliver a radio single. And that was the thing that kept holding the album back. And then, so you flip it. And, you know, he said this too in this interview with Bob Myers, that in order for him to really get to that next level, that 2014 level, he had to let go of his need for validation and being the best, you know. And so still got to believe in himself, but it wasn't enough for him to hear it himself. He needed for others that the media and, you know, he wanted everyone to talk about how he was that guy, that the best dude. And when he let go of that is when 2014 like happened. I also thought that, you know, um, when he stopped trying to chase singles and and potentially, you know, and we've talked about this before with Kendrick with with, um, with Dr. Dre, Instead of leaning on the machine, the the, the aftermath machine or the, the rock Nation machine in Cole's case, or Dre in Kendrick's case, or, or Jay in, in Cole's case, that's when he really stepped into his own, right? There were no features on 2014, which at that time was just, no one was doing that. Everybody had multiple features on every album. So for him to put out something that wasn't chasing radio hits, that didn't have a feature from anyone and just really be about himself shows that he did achieve that. He didn't need validation from anyone. And that's, you know, that's when it really paid out for him.
1: You know, you and I did a podcast episode, I believe in 2022 on why J. Cole is the Tim Duncan of of hip hop. And that was a very respectful um, headline and title for reasons that anyone that listens to that will, will soon quickly see. The thing that I think about is, you know, I don't know about you, I signed up, the first time I paid for a digital streaming platform was 2013, for, for audio, like I paid Netflix and stuff, but 2013, uh, and I think I did so later in the year. And J. Cole is an artist that has, you know, kind of gone around radio, kind of gone around those outlets. So it's so interesting that, you know, when he put his first album out, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, it's a different climate. But by the time you get to 2014 it, in my mind at least everyone was starting to kind of turn their radios off and and pick up their phones or pick up their laptops and consume music and and to the point that he makes to bob myers he didn't have an album to sell anymore he didn't need radio to sell an album or make you aware he could make the album and just count on quality and word of mouth to bring people to it and in, in a way that's different than kendrick right because like section 80 in my mind, even though like I paid money for it, it was a free album. Like I believe in 2011, you could go on SoundCloud and just get the album. You could download it. Like TDE wasn't concerned with selling it, but J. Cole was signed to Rock Nation, distributed uh, through Interscope, I think at the time. might have been Sony at the very beginning. And he still had to play into that machine. So once he could kind of use the resources around him and culture had caught up to him, you know... I think that he he really like lightning struck, and and we do see it on that third album.
0: Absolutely. So another interesting thing he said on this interview was that he didn't see himself as a leader in the industry. Um, I thought that was interesting because literally just a day or two later after this interview dropped, there's a story and there's video footage of Cole like in the projects in New York City, like um, you know I think it's in the Bronx or, or Harlem, I can't remember, but it it's uptown. And he is just listening to a aspiring rapper, like, you know, in an informal listening party in a lobby, uh, just spitting, you know, and giving the dude encouragement, talking about how dope the verse is. The guy's like, yo, I need to put a second verse. Cole's like, nah, man, just let that go. Put it into the put it into the universe like the people are ready. You know, watch it fly. And, you know, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, Cole also was on YouTube searching for a J. Cole type beat found one and then like lay vocals to it and just put out a record on this, you know, unknown producers beat like Jay Cole, like, you know, to me is more of a leader than just um, uh, just about anyone in terms of like the deeds that he does in order to help put people on and motivate. So, but what did you think about that? You think it's, it's an ironic that he doesn't see himself as a leader.
1: I think it's just a testament to staying humble. You know, like Jay Cole is that guy that again, you know, to use other points, like, During the protests you know after the murder of mike brown in 2015 like he was the guy that people you know that were taking it to the streets in new york would look over and see j cole walking with his 10 speed you know or with his mountain bike he's the guy that you know did one dollar concert tickets like j cole's brand you know and, and not for nothing i mean you know we've seen the bentley's in the videos the guy clearly lives a good life he's not out here trying to you know pander but he still has made himself super accessible and minimized the gulf between him and his fans. And when he does things like that, I mean, I've said it to you before, I don't know if on this podcast, but J. Cole makes being a hip hop superstar look really fun, you know. Yeah. And also because he doesn't seem to be a tortured artist either. Um, but I like that. I mean, he's just I think he's just just being like we see, just like, hey, I'm regular, but I'm also super competitive but I'm not going to talk a lot of ish and say, I'm the best. I'm the best. I'm the best. Unless I do it in the verses, which he has.
0: I love that. He likes to be inspirational. And I think that that comes from someplace deep inside him. Like I believe that he needed that in his life at some point and he's trying to pay it forward. And so the thing that really stuck out the most to me about this interview was later on, um, you know, he's asked, you know, three things he would tell people who are trying to achieve his level of success. And here's what he said. He said, first of all, see yourself as high as you can possibly see yourself. So if someone wants to be an NBA player, to me, that's not enough. There's a wide range of NBA players. There's an NBA player that never saw the floor. He was in the NBA. LeBron James is in the NBA. Who do you see yourself as? And there's no right or wrong answer. Clarify and define your vision for yourself in the highest possible position you can see it. Do you want to be a 12-time All-Star? You want to be a league MVP, be as specific and see yourself as high as you possibly can. That's your first job is to see it as high as you can see it. Be delusional even, going back to that delusional point, right? Right at the apex of what your mind believes is possible, push past that even a little bit and define it. Like that is just like, that to me aligns with so many different things that that you see across multiple philosophies, like self-help positive thinking books, like, you know, the, the, one of the first things that that these books talk about is visualizing, envisioning yourself in the scenario that you want to be, uh, because it crystallizes in your mind and gives you something to work toward and and, and basically tricks your mind into thinking that you can achieve it. But how, how did that strike you?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the buzzword that I think we all hear or say or have somebody in our circles that says whether we embrace or not, is that manifest? Like, You know, be very deliberate and be very bold in what you want for yourself. And I love that J. Cole asked you to be specific. You know, I I think I told you I know I told you personally. I don't know if I've said but like this year for the first time in, you know, 38, now 39 years, I created a vision board and I used to think that stuff was corny. But like and I, I didn't you know, I didn't put 100 things on it. I think I put like nine or I chose three areas. But you have to be deliberate in your, in your, um, in your asks of the universe, and, and and in your motivations to yourself. So I love that, and saying that being in the NBA isn't enough because there's a spectrum, and that doesn't mean you should always ask you know tell yourself you need to be a 12 time All Star, but decide do you want to lead in a category? Do you want to be a champion? Do you want to be part of a team? Do you want to be an MVP? And I, I just think that's brilliant wisdom.
0: Yeah, man, and you know if you read books like Think and Grow Rich to your point about vision boards, one of the things that has you do is write a paragraph, a specific paragraph about where you want to be in X amount of time. And then you're supposed to read that paragraph aloud every single day until it happens. So, you know, it's about the repetition. So that leads to number two for Cole, right? He says, number two, it's not just enough to imagine. He says, number two is believe it. See it all that time and believe it. And whatever you got to do to protect that belief do it basically. And he says, my version of protecting that belief was I wasn't sharing it. I'm not even going to give my own mother the chance to try and bring me back down to reality. It's not going to happen. I thought that was so powerful. You know, first of all, you have to have faith, right? It's not enough to just have the vision, have the very clear, specific vision, but you got to really believe it. And, you know, this is what I think Grow Rich and other like books have said is like, you have to believe it with all your heart, like in order for it to happen. But Cole's point about like, about protecting that belief was really resonant with me, right? Because a lot of times it could be friends, it could be family, it could be significant others. A lot of people, um, you know, like Barry Gordy said, are going to think you're crazy. And it's not like malicious or people deliberately trying to tear you down or whatever, but people plant that doubt. They don't want you a lot of times to be disappointed. They, they're trying to protect you even, uh, but they want to tell you you know, don't set your your standards too high or like, you know, this could happen or whatever. And Cole's like, listen, I'm not giving anybody that opportunity. I'm going to keep it to myself, but I'm going to believe it. So, you know, did that that strike you?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely it did. Um, I, when it comes to motivations, like I'm a very private person, like you have to pry out of me um, unless, you know, you're in my, my innermost circle, which you most certainly are of like, you know, where I can dream on you, you know, like I can tell you like where I'm trying to go, what I'm trying to do, the changes I'm trying to make. But what really resonated with me about this is just the dream shatters around people. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because, you know, I don't think Cole is he's, he's showing how sacred it is that he's not even going to tell his own grandmother. But I thought that was interesting being a child that says he was taught he could do anything or be anything because mm-hmm. you have that juxtaposition. And even still, he's not out here broadcasting that. And, you know, I, I will tell you that I've had people around me that have have, you know, shattered my dream. Like I've had significant others that will say you're not going to make it like you're, you're just not on that path. And I've chosen the path over the person, you know, and, and I, I think we all come to those sort of ultimatums. And so it's, it's a very real resonant jewel of wisdom.
0: Yeah, and that um, that point—that's a great one about his mom. Yeah, you're right. His mom did tell him that he could do anything, and I found that to be a common element in you know the people who've achieved the highest levels of success in hip hop and probably life in general. You know, Puff um, definitely was very vocal about that. Kanye, very vocal. You saw in the documentary Genius, his mom like you know always bigging him up. Jay Z, like I, th- I think it's pretty critical to have people. Um, at the very least, not limiting you, but in some ways, hyping you up.
1: So you're a father. I mean, is that something you've instilled in your sons?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, uh, first of all, I never put any pressure on my, 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 my kids. You know, my dreams are not their dreams. And so I don't instill that in them. Um, and I also, you know, never plant any doubt when they say they want to go to the league or do whatever. Like, cool. Like, you know, keep working. It's, you know, what you don't see a lot of times is the grind that this person puts in. So just keep that in mind, you know, and, and that's actually the, the third thing that Nicole talks about. He says three is work towards it. You have to do the work and because you love it, it's not always going to feel like work, but sometimes it is, you know, and so those three things, you know, first of all, envision it specifically and, and in a grandiose way. Number two, believe it with all your might and don't let anyone else like create doubt around that belief. And third is work towards it were his secrets to success. And so watching that and listening to it, it took me back to a series that we did back in 2012 called Grit. Um, we did this with Rhapsody, Absol, Big Crit, and Kendrick Lamar. And I was motivated to do it at the time because you know I'd met all these artists um, and I-, I wanted to figure out what the key to success was for them because without exception, like just about every person that I met had been grinding and working at their craft for seven years, at least with zero positive indicators that they were going to succeed. You know, literally sleeping on floors, like, you know, 10 people in a van, you know, 12 people in a hotel room, eating ramen noodles, dirt poor, performing for 12 people, like that kind of thing for seven years. And like, like what can t- what sustains a person that long, you know, and I wanted to figure out, you know, what separates those who succeed from those who don't, there's a lot of creative people out there. There's a lot of people who are put into positions to succeed. But the thing that like separates those who who do from those who don't, is that they don't quit. And so I really wanted to get at why they didn't quit. And as I was listening to this Cole interview, um, it really reminded me of those things. So I want to want to spend some talk, time talking about that. But Before I get into it, you have stories like that about grit and, you know, um, artists you've seen or, you know, uh, worked with that demonstrated that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is just like, you know, I think of Kobe shooting those those, um, you know, those jumpers, right, like every day. And I, I see that a lot in hip hop. And it's not just like putting out music, but doing the work. You know, we didn't talk about it, but that third point, I think, is the biggest difference from those who talk about it and those that be about it, like doing the work and accepting the parts that are not glamorous, that, that you know, like you said, people sleeping in a van or, or um, you know, just the hunger pains or, or picking up a second job and not telling anyone, you know, whatever that is, um, that is the key differentiator. But yeah, it's funny. I mean, the, the first time you and I met um, 11, 11 years ago next month, you were right as I walked out, you and I kind of had like a loose interview connected, you know, and as I was walking out it was at a hotel bar in New York, crit was walking in, and you were about to film the grit the grit episode with big crit
0: oh is that right? that's crazy yeah uh, man that's wow okay i, I had not, i did not remember that that's wow that's but really see, crazy. to to your question that's though, like sad, yeah. i can't
1: I can't think right now specifically of um you know, those examples, but I always just think, and I know he's not necessarily in favor right now, but I always love that Kanye verse on spaceship of like, you know, working for, for these summers and, you know, like really putting in the grind that nobody ever sees to get you there. And there's always that thing that's on social media of like what people see, which is just like the tip of the iceberg, literally in the illustration and the years underneath the surface that people don't see. And I think that is especially true. Um, in a creative industry or in an entertainment industry like hip-hop.
0: Absolutely. So I asked the same questions to each one of these artists, and they were thematically very similar to those that Bob Myers was asking Jay Cole. So one was, how long have you been doing music? Because I really wanted to establish that these guys have been doing it much longer than most people think. You know, a lot of people think that these new artists we're, uh, we're coming up in like the 2010s, like the 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 TDEs and the Coles and people like that. But these guys have been grinding for seven years before that, like before anyone heard of them. So that's one. What keeps you motivated? Did you ever feel like giving up? Because I think a lot of times people think that these guys just like are iron people and never, ever like uh, have any doubt. And, you know, you'll see this kind of split across the board in that regard what got you through it, you know, because obviously they didn't give up. So what kept them motivated and kept them going? And then what advice would you give to others coming after you? And that's where we got that goal from Cole. So it struck me, man, how similar these responses were. So with Kendrick, and those of you watching on YouTube, I'm going to link these videos, um, you know, so you'll you'll see them pop up. Uh, you can find them on our YouTube page. If you just search, you know, the person's name and grit under our, and, you know, for Spotify or whatever, check and it we'll, out there too. We'll do it
1: in the story too, as a playlist as well, as a bonus beat.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so Kendrick had 500 songs on Stash in 2012, you know, so Kendrick fans know that, he was—he uh, released Good Kid, Mad City in, in 2012. And these interviews were done in 2012. So just, just keep that in mind too. Uh, he had 500 songs on Stash and none of them were ever going to come out. Like, so this dude has recorded 500. Like a lot of people don't record 500 songs in their lifetime. This dude re- recorded 500 songs that had never come out. And he said, uh, when you can feel, still feel good about what you're doing without really caring what everyone else is thinking, they'll respect you as a leader more then they'll listen. Then when they find out you're really talking about something, it's over. That was in response to, you know, before he had been chasing. And if you go back and listen to old Kendrick stuff, there's songs where he sounds like Wayne, there's songs where he sounds like Jay. He really didn't step into who he was until the Kendrick Lamar EP. And so he talks about when he stopped chasing others and leaned into who he really is, that's when he like had success. But that part struck me very similarly to like what cola said um you have similar thoughts on that
1: yeah no i I love that just be original and and really find yourself and i think that even as much as i love section 80 i think by the time good kid mad city comes around kendrick was completely himself um yeah and that's when things start to really j-curve
0: and not caring what everyone else is thinking, right? Like, you know, Cole was saying that too, like when he stopped seeking that validation is when he really took off. Um, you know, Kendrick also said that hit records start with what the people want and not what record companies or radio. So he said, once I figured that out, I just went for the gusto and started doing music I thought people needed to hear instead of what everyone else was telling me to do. And then when he when asked him about his advice to upcoming artists, this is what really blew me away. Again, these are 12 years apart. And, you know, presumably these guys weren't talking about this or certainly that they were Cole's not going to remember some stuff that Ian and Kendrick were talking about years ago. But Kendrick said, you got to have the vision first before anything. He literally started with that right exact same blueprint. And we'll get to that like reference in a few minutes, but exact same blueprint, you got to have the vision first before anything. And then he quoted 50 Cent, something that 50 Cent told to him that he wanted to pass forward, which is talent will never outshine a person that works hard. No matter how much I was born with ability, if I didn't have that grind and that vision for it, then it would never come to light. So um you gotta have the you gotta have a vision for it. And then that vision comes with the dedication behind it so, to your point. Like that's You, know, that, you gotta grind.
1: that's that perspiration, you know, versus talent thing. Like I, I love that. And I love the fact that 50 said that um too because you know I I don't think neither you nor I would call 50 the greatest lyricist but there was a reason why he dominated for several years and continues to be a force within this and I truly believe it's his grind and dedication um and and also to Kendrick's point his vision you know of where are you going to go next and you know if we ever get the chance and I hope we do to ask Kendrick I'd be curious to know how much of his reality today is the vision he had 11, 12 years ago.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, 50 Cent went from being a mixtape rapper to someone who was shot and nearly killed to a mixtape rapper again to signing with Dr. Dre and becoming arguably the biggest rapper on the planet for a year or two to now having, you know, potentially the biggest, like, or maybe second to Tyler Perry or Oprah, but like one of the biggest TV empires for a black media mogul, in the world and took that you know he took his talents from stars uh to to fox so i mean this guy like you know you talk about vision
1: yeah uh, i want to break the fourth wall for a second i mean do you remember um just like what your takeaway was as kendrick was telling you this 11 years ago
0: yeah i mean uh, my takeaway was okay so this was in at south by southwest so it was march of 2012 right um i didn't put it out until October of 2012. Cause I knew the good kid, Matt City was coming and I wanted to put this out as a series. Yeah. And like the world changed massively. Right. So just full transparency. And this is, this is not a flex. This is just like, um, what the nature of our relationship was, um, my, my relationship with TDE was, is that, so I was on a panel with Kendrick, um, and, um, Kevin Lyles and, and, um, you know kevin Lyle's the, the former president of def jam and like now president of 300 and so forth jana fleischman who was the the pr head of pr for rock nation still is to this day and like more than that she's more than that um Tatiana Simonian who was um the head of music for twitter myself and then ironically moderated by TJ Holmes right so um um so the night before TDE came to my room. Like, I mean, there was like literally like 10 dudes in my room, right? Like shout out to Ray, uh, you know, who's still PR for Interscope now. Uh, but he got the guys in my room. So Kendrick Q, Absol and J rock. I interviewed all of them, uh, that night and I did grit with Kendrick and, um, you know, a couple others with, 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 the, with, the, with the guys and Kendrick, you know, he could do that. He could move around like that. You know, he went down to the hotel, to your point about what happens in the hotel lobbies in Nardwar to do a Nardwar interview. And like, for those who want to like, uh, really like do a deep dive, if you look at the Kendrick Lamar Nardwar interview at about 10 minutes in, the cameraman pans a room and you'll see me standing in the background. Kendrick skipped over me in the introductions yeah. what I'm in the, in the background there. Um, but I knew Kendrick was great. Right. Like section 80 was something that really like blew me away. His cipher performance, which he had done one before that, was incredible. I thought he was special. Um, and I thought that he had the potential to blow. I don't think anyone, including himself, knew that he was eventually gonna become a Pulitzer Prize winner, win 17 Grammys. But I'll tell you also, Dave Free. Um, you know, when I left BT, um, you know, said he's going to continue building the biggest record company in the world. Like Dave free's vision was, I am going to build the big, he said, I think this is the biggest record company on the planet. Like, mm. like it, there was no, no. And he, he said it with such conviction and like nonchalantness. It was wild, but I got to assume that Kendrick's people, you know, cause Dave and, and Kendrick have been uh, business partners and friends for years they're going to have like-minded mentalities. So stepping back all the way to that point, I got to think that, K- that Kendrick always believed he was going to be there. And Kendrick is a man of deep faith and all these things. Uh, I, I think he probably believed it and and probably envisioned it for sure.
1: That's wild, man. I was in that same, I was in that same South by, we threw a showcase when I was at DX. Um, we were moving in the same streets, possibly in that same lobby because Nardwar kept popping up at our showcases too. It's funny. The world <laughs> is small, man. Yeah, um,
0: man, I got my, I got my picture with nightwar, and he's doing, he's, he's doing his pose too. It's dope. <laughs> That's um, dope. So uh,
1: you, uh, you, you said Kendrick, I'll even though it was you that conducted the interview, unless you would rather, I can, I can explain some of the things that crit broke down on the night that you and I met, if you want to talk about serendipity.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. S- sounds good.
1: So, so crit who has been um, an ardent supporter of AFH, um, our readers back in 2017, Uh, picked his album as the album of the year which was great when we used to do that and let the readers decide what the best was but back in and so that would have been 2012 so a month later boom you came back from austin um interviewed crit in the hudson hotel in new york city april of 2012 and crit at that time so just for context um live from the underground was out i guess he would have been catalactica i don't think was out yet right
0: do you remember no it was not out yet it's Where, definitely
1: not yeah, yeah, so he's in between those two albums if if memory serves. And at that time he hadn't,
0: had, he hadn't had his major label debut yet,
1: oh, so live from the Underground wasn't even out yet,
0: yeah. he had oh, not wow. had his major label debut.
1: yeah, my goodness, okay. So he said at that time, I work eighteen hours per day, which is insane because you think about it, that leaves six. That leaves six for sleep, for relationships, for anything else that you have to do. That is how dogged an 18 hour work day is. And obviously work isn't just necessarily making songs, but, you know, balancing a career, answering those emails, you know, checking in with, you know, so-and-so. Um, but I thought that that is, that's staggering, you know, um, as somebody who works a long work day. His motivation, this is what I love to do, what I believe in. So again, that echoes Cole's point, that echoes Kendrick's point, that belief, that and and also that um that desire, like a little bit of both. This is where I want to be and where I believe I'm destined to be. So echoes that. Um, sort of to your point about the the, the vans and, and some of those hunger pains, you know, Crit said that he slept on couches of friends and family for years. And let's not forget, I mean, this is a Meridian, Mississippi artist who in order to make it work, had to spend a ton of time in, you know, New York and in Atlanta and presumably LA. So we can only imagine what that looks like. Also, um, and I I really like this point, you know, his faith in God and sustaining him when he felt like quitting. So and anyone that listens to Crit's music knows um, just, you know, how strong his faith is and the role that God plays in his music. So these are his points of advice. And I love the fact that, again, grit as a series did this Um, to echo what he just said. Stay prayered up. Number two, build a foundation. Surround yourself with people who believe in what you're doing. It's extremely important. And that, you know, kind of echoes J. Cole's point of like, you know, do not share, protect this thing and don't share it with people that might try to talk you out of it or might try to knock you down or even if they love you, even if they're doing it lovingly. So, so protect that. Number three, invest in yourself. Do not try to short change. So, you know, that can be equipment, that can be the quality of mixes, that can be artwork, that can be you know, a host of things. And, you know, now we know, I mean, at that time, Crit was signed to a major label, Def Jam. But, you know, since then, he has, you know, put his last two or three albums out himself. I know he has BMG distribution, but that investing in self mentality is still huge and and core to Crit's business.
0: Yeah, and to that point, you know, elsewhere in that same conversation, Crit said it's better to give out a thousand CDs than to sell a hundred. Mm. And I remember seeing him at stop by one year and he was out like as all these artists that we've talked about so far were in the, on sixth street walking, just giving out CDs to people like grinding, you know, that, that, that grind was real. I saw it occur with these guys.
1: Yeah. And I mean, crit was another artist when I created that, when I shared that contrast between Kendrick and Cole, you know, crit, you know, up until this point, I mean, he was very active in putting out mixtapes as was the way but he had that creative control and didn't have to, um, you know, chase a single that way. I know they did that remix to Country-ish. But yeah, um, so I love this point, too. His fourth point is understand that it ain't going to work overnight. Anything that's worth having is hard work. And you got to be about that grind. I mean, come on now. That's that's like preach.
0: Yeah, that's a different uh, dimension. You know, Cole talks about it lightly about, you know, you got to work and that. Um, you know, sometimes it's not going to feel like work, but like Chris is like, listen, man, you got to be in it for the long haul. Like it is, it is not an easy thing. You got to really, really be about it.
1: His fifth point I really like, cause it's assurance and dreams are scary. You know, I mean, I've been in this industry 21 years and, and there are times where I'm still, you know, that faith is you know you 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 get challenged right or you're just like am i on the right path is it happening fast enough and this is what i what he he said is his fifth and final point i love this if you believe in yourself and people believe in you if it's meant for you it's going to happen and i love that because you know uh, like i didn't have somebody that that 100 told me that um but that kind of reassurance in a crowded you know oversaturated industry it's just a nice reminder that in the end, self-belief and being other people believing in you, which I always just take to mean being authentic, being original. um, It is going to happen. And I love that just to know that like this will transpire. So heavy, heavy stuff from crit. Any other kind of takeaways you have from that conversation?
0: Nah, man, just, you know, so far, all three guys, Cole, Kendrick and crit, very similar things have faith, you know, believe in yourself. Don't let others like, brush your dreams and surround yourself preferably with people who are going to help build them up and then grind, man, just that grind, you know? So Rhapsody is another person i talked to and Rhapsody. This was, I did this one um, almost a year later. This, this is like maybe six months later at A3C and uh, it was with ninth. And, you know, she just, this, this is very early in her career. She had just put out like. um, The idea beautiful. yeah, the idea beautiful, that mixtape. So she right. was probably yeah.
1: working at that point um, on She Got Game, which I think was 2013. So coming up on yes. that.
0: Exactly, yeah. exactly. So she said that she had recorded with Nine for two years before putting anything out. And in that time they did 100 songs, right? So just like Kendrick had 500 songs in the tuck, Rhapsody had 100 songs in two years, and they didn't use any of those songs that she did. Those are literally just... That was just like her, like honing her craft and, and, and figuring out her voice. And then and she said part of the reason why she was you know, motivated to do that is that, you know, and this is a quote, Ninth has all these accolades. He has a Grammy. He's worked with so many legends and he's still up till three in the morning in the studio with her. So I need to stay longer than he does because I'm a new artist. So if he's in the game and he's doing that, I need to work 10 times harder. I mean, that grind is, like, insane. And then when I asked her, you know, how much she worked, you know, per day, she said that, you know, she would often go in at, like, 1 o'clock in the afternoon and not come out till 10 in the morning, you know. And on average, it was 12 to 15 hours per day, she said. And, you know, she's told, told me in, in other conversations, you know, when she's in, like, actual recording mode for a project, that it's quite common that she'll spend a night in the studio for multiple days. Like, I mean... The grind is is real. Another thing she said, and again, this, this reinforcement about having positive energy, like uh, just not having people who bolster your dreams and certainly not people who like in any way like infringe upon them. He said, surround yourself with good energy in the studio. Um, and then when I asked her if she ever felt like giving up, both, both Kendrick and Crit both said they had definitely felt like giving up at times. But, um, you know, for Crit, it was his faith. And, you know, Kendrick, you know, something similar, just like they just kept going on. Um, But she said she's never she never felt like giving up. She got frustrated at times, but she never felt like giving up. And then her advice to upcoming artists was be patient with yourself. That's something that, you know, I think kind of goes hand in hand with like Crit saying that it's going to take a long time, but, you know, be patient And she said, put yourself around people that are better than you to help you grow, which I think is another dimension of that, you know, positivity. To listen more than you talk. And that is something that um, I think is hugely important. She says to listen more than you talk, especially the people who've been there before you and where you're trying to get. And then lastly, she said to work hard at your craft. And she quotes ninth and saying, if you want to make music or anything in life, you have to make it your life. Um, So I thought that was dope. And then last thing she said was foundation is patience, hard work and listening.
1: I really like that point she makes about ninth, like seeing somebody um, that, you know, has all of these accolades working so hard. So you should match their hustle at the very least, you know, hopefully go beyond it. And, you know, I mean, you and I have both worked, you know, other positions in our lives, arguably that had bigger staffs or you know, more, um, I don't know the, 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 the fringe, you know, more, more stuff, but I often, you know, one of the secrets to our partnership, to us working together is I look at you and I watch how hard you work. I even said it to you last week, even as I was traveling and it was kind of like a, not a bachelor party weekend, but like a celebration weekend. And we had all this stuff going on. And I was like, man, I see how hard you're going. Like at the very least, like, like, let me, cause you were like, you can do this thing. If if it works for you, if it works for your schedule. And I just love that. And I think that not only makes for for, heart, for great product, but it makes for true partnership and true um, collaboration and chemistry. And I think that, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find um, a mentor and a protege or a mentee relationship in hip hop as strong as, as Ninth and Rhapsody's. And, and when you read a quote like that, it makes total sense.
0: For sure, for sure. And before you get in the ab, like, I mean, you just reminded me like the whole reason why this resonated with me so much is because, you know, if you're trying to achieve something, man, you're trying to build something out of nothing and trying to take it to greater heights, no matter what it is, whether it's music or a business or, you know, whatever, uh, I find inspiration in this, you know, and looking for those common elements and Trying to figure out what that blueprint is, and so hearing these words inspires me. And so I hope that us sharing it with with with, with others is is going to be inspirational to someone else who might need it at this time too. Uh, but you want to talk about Absol?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just one other point I want to make, you know, is it, that always resonates with me. And and even before I ever saw this Rhapsody thing, I used to ten years ago right now, I had a small studio apartment in in Philly, and it was right down the street from Philadelphia International Records, like. That building's not even there anymore, Um, but that's obviously, you know, the label that put out Tenny Pendergrass, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Billy Paul, you know, stuff with the Jacksons. I mean, that's Gamble and Huff. That is our, you mentioned Barry Gordy, that is Philadelphia's, you know, uh, you know, Hitsville. And I walked by one night because I had spent a little bit of time there and I saw Leon Huff, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, carrying out... um, a a like construction bag of trash and putting it in the dumpster in the alleyway of the building and i had talked to him once or twice and you know i said mr huff and i even pointed out i was like it's wild to me that you know he was like come on like you know my name's on the building so to speak but i do everything like i still work like i'm on my first day i'm paraphrasing but I love that when people don't get lost in the lights of success and still love this and work. And that's one of the things that I'm getting from all of these folks, but especially Rhapsody's point, I think's uh really strong like that. Um
0: yeah, I had a conversation, you know, to that point with Top Dog wants from TDE. And uh, this is recent. This is like um backstage at a reason concert. And he said, I tell my guys all the time, hustle like you broke. Like, and you know, you hear it in their interviews too. Like, you know, if you pay attention, you'll hear that. something TD guy, the e, TDE guy saying that, but that's real, man.
1: Absolutely. So Absol, and this was 10 years ago. So this is after control system, um, right? Like, was this the same? Was this South by as
0: well? I think, no, this was, uh, this was after, this is like uh six, seven months after. Okay.
1: So. Yeah. But control system is out. I mean, he's, he's riding high doing all that stuff. But here's his points. He says he wrote his very first verse at age 12 and has written a verse every day after that. Um, love that point. And you know, if you listen to his latest album, I would still believe that to be true because he's back in peak form. Um, what motivates him? This is a very absolute answer. I love it. Humanity. Um, a thousand people in harmony together through his music. And that the year you did this, that October. Um, so around the time that um you know, Good Kid, Mad City was coming out. I went to the Music Matters tour that that you helped very much put together in Philly. And I saw Ab perform and I was blown away at how invested the crowd was. Like he had made those waves. I can only imagine what that felt like for him on the stage. He's never thought about giving up. He says, worst case scenario, I'll be sleeping on a park bench. That ain't too bad. I know a very old man who's been doing that for a long time, smiling. That's just a... That's a solo quote, if ever there was one, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Um, An advice to up and coming artists, give it about 10, 13 years. If you got that time to give and go hard every minute and you think about it every minute, it will give back to you what you give to it. I promise. I love that because I've heard similar quotes. Um, with somebody the other day that you and I were talking about that kind of had a, it was a five or a seven year plan. But to give it 10 or 13 is insane. And that, again, just goes to show you the commitment to vision um, and and what those results take to crystallize. So just a super, super big point. And I could argue that, you know, Ab is getting his flowers. I mean, Control System was a really important album. And it really, it began to show all the different lanes that the TDE movement was winning. But late in 2022 you know i'm starting to see ab get that standout individual recognition in a way that i hadn't before so i mean that even unto itself goes to show you that that decade plus vision
0: yeah man and so i thought it would be cool to close this out uh this is not an interview that we did uh, but i'm gonna go ahead and set my vision high and um Say that one day um I will interview Jay-Z. And this, I'm a, I'm a I'll be like, I'll keep it 100 percent funky on this. I actually had the opportunity to to interview Jay-Z back in like 2013 or so for a BT special. Um, and we were doing this show BT30, celebrating 30-year anniversary of, of BT. And we got Jay-Z and uh, Stephen Hill, who was my boss at the time and the head of BT music said, you know, I think you would be great to interview Jay-Z. And I clenched up like this is before I'd done these interviews like extensively and stuff like that. And I didn't want to screw up the show. And so I said, listen, we should have our VP of development, the person who's like really running point on this show, do it because I didn't want to mess it up. Right. And it is still one of my biggest professional regrets to this day, but I did get to ask a final question. And, um, you know, he had been there, he said he was only going to give us 15 minutes, he was there for like 15 minutes to an hour. He's like, yo, any more questions? And like, he said, because y'all have had me up in here for a long time. And I said, I got one. He said, he said, it better be good. And like everyone in the room got quiet while I asked this question. And I asked him the question. He said, that was a damn good question. And then he went on for like 10, 10 more minutes, like, and it like became kind of the crux of the interview. And so even though I didn't do the whole interview, I feel like I did interview Hove a little bit, but I will put it out there that we're going to do a full interview with Hove at some point.
1: The first time you told me the story, I asked, but for since you, I don't think you've said this before on the pod, can you remember the question? Yeah.
0: yeah, I asked him, I said, listen, like, um, you've been successful for many years um, through many different mediums so you know not only rock a fella but also rock aware and then rock nation i said how much of your success do you attribute it to being you know in charge of your own destiny rather than being signed to a label and he said it, it meant everything to him you know um and then went on for like like i said 10 minutes is great 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 answer and i could tell it meant something to him to be able to talk about like how much being his own person led to his own success, you know, and that really kind of dovetails with a lot of the things we've heard today, but I thought it would be cool because Jay is, I think for a lot of people, the pinnacle of success in hip hop, uh, commercially, critically, he's got the most Grammys, you know, he's got amongst the most sales and, um, he's got the most money. He's had, you know, arguably the most achievements outside of the music. I think he's kind of like, uh, the grandmaster, you know, um, and so um, I found this video that had a bunch of different quotes from Jay-Z about his secrets to Success. I um, start go in going the same order as Cole because it's very similar to what Cole has said. So either Jay is rubbed off on Cole or, again, like we've seen in all these artists, maybe there's just themes, man, universal themes. And that's what I was trying to get to with Grit in the first place. So in terms of vision, he said, and this is from Fade to Black, he said, I'm going to go up there. He's in Madison Square Garden, walking through the hallways, about to do a show. He says, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to think. I'm going to envision myself tearing this down. That's how you do it. You got to vision it first. And then in terms of believing in yourself, you know, this is another uh, couple of clips. He said, you have to have such a strong belief in yourself that you can quiet all the outside noise. Again, you know, going back to that cold thought about don't let anyone... Quiet to dreams. Jay's like, nah, you, you got to have such a belief in yourself, that you're going to quiet all that noise. And he said, there are people who are projecting their fears and their shortcomings and their failures on you. And you have to be very careful with that. People are telling you, you can't do that. Why can't I? So again, you know, uh, surrounding yourself with the right people. And he said, it's not really about you. It's about their fear and what they feel inside. So you have to be strong enough and resilient to believe in whatever it is you're trying to do. And then he said, I personally don't believe anybody could stop me. It's just what I believe. I was destined to be here and it just is what it is. And then, you know, in, in, in terms of dreaming big, because Cole talked about that too, like being clear and grandiose in your vision. He said, I had a really outside dream of being a millionaire by the time I was 30 years old. And then when you talk, when you think about uh, you don't know, which we talked about in depth last week in the, po- the podcast. One of my favorite passages in that is 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, 4, uh, uh, 40, man, I'm at 80 million, I can't remember, yeah. but like he he, he set got- his limit at like, at yeah. like 80 million, then a hundred million, man, right? And now we know Jay-Z is a billionaire twice over. So even Jay like didn't think as big as he eventually became like at the start.
1: Yeah, he dissed me one time because I, in 2016, I, 2017, I worked for Forbes doing the cash list that they put out every year. And that year he put out, uh, you know, figure what the Forbes figured, then figure more
0: like he, he, he got it in.
1: So I love it. Yeah.
0: And then the last quote that he had was patience and persistence. Right. So that's what it's all about, man. Um, but yo, I found just doing this, man, like I found it to be super inspirational um shout out to j cole for not only talking the talk but walking the walk and sharing that inspiration with new artists new producers whoever it may be you know um you know i think i think it's pretty dope so i gotta
1: ask you because you are one of the people like i've I, i've considered you and i've said this to you before a mentor but you are also a very successful person And what i mean by that is you know you you have you know, three great sons, you, you know, I've watched you in in meetings carry yourself in a way that I aspire to be like, you know, I can go on and on and we won't make this a love fest, but I want to ask you like, what is, I won't get, I won't ask you for five, but is there one or maybe two like secrets of, of your success?
0: Man, I think it's resilience. You know, I think that, um, we all have disappointments, especially when you have really high goals and expectations like, if you have those outsized dreams that, that Cole talks about, you're bound to be disappointed periodically a lot of times, you know, and it's about um, not taking it personally, um, rebounding from it, believing that you're going to get past it and figuring out another path and then keeping, you know, keep going forward. Like it, that That is the thing that I think is the through line for all these people is that you just keep going forward. And the grit comes from different places for different people. Some people is from from faith. Um, some people it's their parents have instilled it. Some people, um, you know, just are hard headed. But whatever it is, if you can embrace that and lean into it, and know that if you can get up more times than you've been knocked down, that you're gonna win. That's what it's all about. What about for you?
1: I really like the the work aspect of it but one of the things and actually it's a jewel that you've taught me is you know you you can work you can do those those 16 hour days every day um or 18 hours uh i think who said that uh crit was 18 hours every day um but you also have to take care of yourself and one of the things you know especially as as you get older and you know have family and more responsibilities i've gotten selfish in that i've gotten selfish in my boundaries and saying saying no to things, but I still, at the end of the day, do the work. And I still hustle like I'm broke and I've been broke. Um, and then, you know, the other thing, and and this, this recurred throughout is like put people in your life that a, you can learn something from and and, and aspire to be like, and if people are negative um, that's my circle, you know, I'm, I'm a very loyal and loving person, but if I have folks around me who are constantly bitter or feel like they're owed something else, and that's, that's the narrative that they lead with, that's their headline, I don't want that around me, because I truly believe that um, attitudes and success is contagious.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on the topic of hard work, there is a notable hip hop legend that is, you know, rumored to have been one of the hardest workers of all time. And, you know, I, I'll shout you out, too. Like, you're definitely one of the hardest workers I know. Like, uh, you, we I think we foster competitiveness with each other in that regard. So I thank you for that. But on the artist side, Tupac was one of the hardest working dudes ever. Like There, there, there are stories about him when he got out of prison and went to death row. He had not one, but two studios going So he could just be recording all day and he was pumping out like 10 songs a day just like like output that like it was extraordinary but tupac was in the news you want this this week you want to talk about that yeah
1: and i'm glad you made that point and I'll, i'll come back to that but corrupt you know who's somebody who you know made quite a few songs with tupac they were label mates um you know later in life and i think friends you know tupac was an affiliate of snoop and the dog pound even before he joined death row but um corrupt was on the art of dialogue you and i recently did a podcast largely centered around Melly mel speaking to the art of dialogue but corrupt who we had on this very podcast uh, in 2021 i think he um he sat down and he was just speaking of a side of Pac. and i've i've read you know just about every book and seen every documentary uh, that i didn't wasn't aware of and this is corrupt talking he said tupac was strength couldn't nobody tell him no he tells people what to do. He listens to people, but he makes his own decisions. He was very strong-minded, and when he came to Death Row, he didn't come just for himself and all that. He wanted to change the image of Death Row. He wanted to add everybody else. He wanted to add everybody else's table. He changed our work ethics, the way that we got in the studio, and how many records we got done at the end of the day. He also adds something a little bit on the on the image side and the super not superficial, but on the just appearance side. He said he wanted to change our apparel and how we looked, which, you know, that didn't work because that's that's you, Pac. That's y'all ish over there wearing khakis. Because you know what I'm saying? Pac loved it. He respected it. But he came and this is corrupt again, saying it's a fly ass dress code because I couldn't understand. Uh, He was like, brother, put on the army fatigues. And instead, he was saying, like, put on Versace, put on, you know, name brand labels, get fly. And Corrupt admits, you know, and you think about those, those 95, 96 dog pound images of those dudes in like, you know, blue sweatshirts and flannels and khakis. Um, and he said that, and and oddly enough, you know, Snoop Dogg in a previous interview had said the same of, you know, it was a reason why around, around the dog father, you started to see Snoop in tailored suits and Pac even introduced him to his own tailor. And I think that's, it's really interesting be, because, you know, Pac went through his own transition. Like I think he's one of the only artists um, that you can look at and know almost down to the year. And I know he had a five-year run, but I can look at a photo of Pac and based on what he's wearing, know what year it is, you know, most, most of the time because he went from, you know uh, not having a lot to the army fatigue, looking like 94 and you know, 95, a lot of the year, he obviously spent um, locked up, but when he came out, you know, he dressed the part of a superstar and and was one of the first artists that I ever remember wearing a chain. Um, So it kind of of lends itself to a question of like how, you know, there's so many things that Tupac did while he was at Death Row that I think we can agree were negative, you know, and watching his transformation from making an album like Me Against the World to some of those themes that you see on All Eyes on Me. Um, There was, you know, a lot of good music too, but he came out with, you know, A a bend you know he had a he had something to prove quite a few things but it kind of lends itself to like what were some of the good things that Pac added to a powerhouse label are there any that come to your mind off top
0: well I mean I think all the things that Corrupt said you know I think for me what what it does is it, it makes me wonder it just raises more questions for me you know like I wonder a few things so first of all Tupac you know, had all those songs that have come out posthumously. And now having heard that, you know, Kendrick had 500 songs in the stash, and, and by now it's probably thousands, right? And Rhapsody had 100 songs she recorded that she never released. You got to wonder if Pac would have even put that music out, like if he were alive, you know, because, you know, he did have quality control and this, this, this speaks to that, I think, you know, he had an image that he wanted to project, whether it be clothes or, there are attitudes or whatever. And so, you know, it raises that question. Um, it also makes me wonder, you know, what would Pop have, what would he been into? You know, what would his image have been had he continued to go? Um, you know, so for me, it raises more questions um, than, than not. But I think hearing, you know, this side of him, you step back and think about who Pop was and why he was so compelling. He had so many different dimensions, you know, he wasn't just a rapper, he was an activist and a poet and an actor and, you know, all these things. Um, it just shows you just how what a chess player he was with all these things. You know, you hear that about RZA a lot. And I just finished up the, the, the Wu-Tang series and, you know, recently, but Pac was moving all these pieces in alignment and he, he just had a, such a clear vision for where he wanted to go. Going back to our last conversation, I wonder where Pac would be right now if he'd been given that chance.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, I I like the point of this interview, too, because I became I mean, Tupac, you and I recently in speaking about Melly Mel, we're talking about our favorite rappers of certain times in our lives. And in the mid 90s, Pac was my favorite rapper, hands down, unequivocally. And it was the death row time. I mean, I just thought that music was so cinematic. It was so passionate. It is flawed all day long. But, you know, there's a lot to unpack there and you mentioned a moment ago like you know Pac would take a studio and run multiple rooms at the same time which is something that michael jackson also did when he was making the history album he would take a group of producers and songwriters put them in one room and in michael jackson's case across across town he would have another like you know jimmy jam and terry lewis here renee moore there but with Pac, they had that studio, Can-Am, which is now, as we talked about, TDE. It's owned by Mixed by Ali, which I think is so dope. And in one room, he would have your Johnny J's and, you know, for a time, your Dr. Dre's and your Daz's. And then you would have another room. And then there was an even another room where he had guys that were just trying to get on. And he would go, like, do not, you know, not in an arrogant way, maybe at times, but like, when the beat's ready, run it. I'm going to come in. I'm going to spit what I got to say. I might do it twice and I'm going to go to the other room and, you know, all eyes on me was made in 14 days. Um, You know, the Machiavelli album was made in even less. And that album was made with people that were kind of the special teams producers. You know, those guys, apart from QD three on, to live and die in LA, they're all relative unknown producers. And that's still amazing music like, you know, hail Mary and toss it up and which was actually produced by Demetrius ships, dad, Who played Tupac, um, Demetrius Jr. in the all eyes on me movie. But I think about that. That's work ethic and that's the intelligence of catalog. And to your point, I mean, in the 90s, either you were gonna put it out or you're gonna hold it back. What Pac would have done had he been in control of his own music and lived past September of 96 only makes you wonder. Um, two other things just come to mind, too, is you know, like nowadays the hip hop music that I love is a universe. Like we just talked about Jay-Z, like. You listen to a Jay song and you know who Tata is, you know, you know who OG1 is, you know who DeHaven is. You know, you know these names of people that have never spit on records and you know what they mean in Jay's life because he creates a universe. And I think that in some ways Tupac was moving towards that and Death Row being a movement in the mid 90s, you look at a song like To Live and Die in LA and as the beat plays out, you know, he's mentioning a lot of the people that made death row what it was that weren't artists you know so sure some of them are are you know guys in street organizations but they were the people that helped give death row that image for better and worse and to create that sense of family that sense of honor that sense of like hey you're the listener out there are going to know all that's part of this movement i think you know is is really revolutionary you know not for nothing i mean biggie did that too but um There's that. And then also just the last thing that I'll say is Tupac loved the underdog. You know, he was somebody who um, very much had the belief in and this is, you know, very true of J. Cole popping into that studio or giving a producer, arguably his biggest credit to date, like he did earlier this year. And you look at the stuff that Pac did in the last year of his life. And, you know, it was him that was using these big, grandiose budgets to get, you know, Big Daddy Kane involved, to get Rappin' Forte involved. Um, I interviewed CPO, The Boss Hog, who is on um, Picture Me Rolling. And CPO told me, you know, he was an artist, he was was signed to MC Ren, put out an album on Capitol back in the day, and was signed to death row, but at the lowest level. You know, I mean, you see him on Murder Was The Case soundtrack and Above the Rim, but he wasn't living a life Um, that reflected being on the biggest label at the time. I interviewed him 2011 or 2012 for Hip Hop TX. And CPO said, you know, he always had this this little friendship with Pac when they would bump into each other. It was respect both ways because Pac truly was a fan of the music. And when he learned he, he had picked up another job just to support himself, but still had that rap dream, still doing that thing that we're talking about. And he learned that Pac had gotten out of jail and was recording And he called the studio and said, Could he speak to Tupac? And Pac called him back and he said, What are you doing today? And CPO said, I would love to get on your song. And Pac said, Come here right now. Come here today and let's see what we can do. And if you look at all eyes on me, I mean, it's just filled with guests. He was putting people in positions of power. And CPO had said to me, and before he passed, that changed his life. It was a $37,000 check off of one verse when all the royalties cleared. But more importantly, it let a guy who had a dream know that he was still valid and still important and still could fit in on a chart topping diamond record, which I think is just really remarkable. And I think Tupac, being a new kid on the block at Death Row, did a really good job of involving everybody from producers to artists to behind the scenes people. I mean, there's a reason why anybody at that label would ride for him in the way that they did.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. One of the things that Cole talked about when he said he wasn't a leader is that he could imagine people seeing him as a leader in the business, even though he didn't see himself that way. And he reflected on how when he was coming up, he saw Tupac as a leader, you know, and Nas and Jay-Z. And so... It's interesting that Tupac was doing back then the same thing that J. Cole is is doing now 30 years later and putting new artists on. So that's a really dope story.
1: And in your 20s, man, like at a time like I don't know about you, like I'm a pretty, you know, I know you're a good person. I'm a good person. But like I've gotten I've gotten better and more loving with time. And Pac was so young and to be thinking of other people so altruistically at that point is just really a testament to character, I think.
0: Yeah, man. And so, you know, as it's very strange how often this happens, but, you know, um, Tupac and Biggie often are tied, you know, and historically for obvious reasons. But this week in the news, um, there was some some Biggie uh, news that came out, too. So DJ Premier has got this series on YouTube called Sew Us Up. Uh, where he talks about different experiences that he's had in life. And he breaks down a couple tracks. Well, the, the previous episode was on the making of Gangstars Dwick. Um, and, and the most recent one, it was about uh, the Ten Crack Commandments. And DJ Premier breaks down the story of how the Ten Crack Commandments came about. And so you know, definitely go and check that out. I'll just go through quickly some of the highlights. But you know, originally, that beat was a promo beat for Angie Martinez's top five at nine on Hot 97. Those who were in New York in the 90s know that that was a staple. Um, Like, you know, at nine o'clock, you tuned in to hear what the top five was on Hot 97. And Hot 97 was the premier hip-hop radio station, not only in New York City, but in the entire country.
1: Where hip-hop lives. Yeah.
0: It was where hip-hop lives. Exactly. Um, And Jay Rue the Damager is actually the first who rapped on it. And so, It went one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and it stopped at nine because it was at nine. And you know, and Premier was even intentional about the scratches; like he would scratch five times. uh, You know, one, two, three, four, five. You know, um, just to like you know put the emphasis on the five and the nine. And J Rue, you know, Premier plays his verse, just smashed it. So Puff Puff Daddy was on the radio with Angie Martinez one day, and he publicly asked Premier to call him and people were hitting up Premier. Yo, Puff just, just asked you to call. So Premier called into the radio. He had the special like hotline and um, you know, and Puff said, yeah, you know, big wants this beat. And then, you know, Premier noticed that at that time there was some tension between bad boy and j Roo. Um, But, you know, Puff was like, listen, like, you know, ask j rule if it's cool, I get the beat. And so, you know, Premier asked j rule and he's like, this is, that's hip hop, man. Big is the homie you know, give it to him. I don't want any money or anything. And Angie Martinez was cool with the two. And so the premiere got the green light. And, uh, you know, because it only went up to nine and it was the 10 crack commandments, not the nine cra- crack commandments. Primo had to find a 10. And so there was a, a song, I forget the Keith Murray song, but there was a countdown, like an astronaut kind of countdown. And, uh, he added that 10 to the 10. Uh, and that's why, you know, it doesn't have ten. that yeah. boys Yeah. Um, yeah. And then and the song, you know, completed Biggie's album. It was the last one recorded. And, and, and Premiere says that there's a scene in Notorious, the, you know, the, the B.I.G. film, a Star and Gravy, where he's depicted as saying, you know, I did it, I'm the greatest, uh, after recording Sky's the Limit. Preem says, no, it was actually at that session that he said it. Um, and like, he's really feeling it. A uh, fun fact is, for, for, uh, for you is that I was actually working on that producer agreement uh, when I got to the law firm. Um, shout out to Mark Levinson, who is still Premier's lawyer to this day, but I was his associate at the time. And he gave me the vast majority of Premier's production agreements from like 19, 7 to 19, 1997 to 1999. What were, you, what were you like 10 years old, something like that? Nah, no, man, I was
1: I was 13, man.
0: 13, okay. <laughs> I was a lawyer doing deals with Premier and, and Rakim and Premier and Biggie and you were... I was buying grade, the albums, uh, man. I was making it possible. Great, buying the albums, exactly. So yeah, we were bonded even then. Um, yeah. shout out to Mark Levinson and DJ Premier. Um, but yo, um a couple other things, quick things you want to run through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to say, like, I really um I dig that series just because you know, people for years have been asking Premier, like I've done, I've been interviewing Premier for 18 years. And it's so much better when he can tell it and hold up the discs and and really tell the story with the records around him. I've really, really, really enjoyed that series. Um, So, yeah, uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting is J.I.D. meets um, Jay-Z. You know, he reflected on that. And, you know, you and I both agreed J.I.D. made one of the best albums of 2022. It was absolutely snubbed at those other awards. But uh, you and I gave it all the flowers we possibly could. But I thought it was interesting because I think that J.I.D. is a top artist of the moment. And he said this about meeting one of his um, biggest influences. He says, people that I'm a fan of, I don't give an F. I'm a fan out. I tweaked out when I met Jay-Z. He Fs with me and I didn't tweak out. I was just like, uh, uh. And he admits that ironically he was gone off that Duce, which is, you know, a liquor brand that Jay-Z is very, very, very much a part of. And he said, because I'd met him a couple of years ago, we said, what's up? And that was calm. But this time when I met him, he says, Elliot Wilson, shout out to Elliot, introduced us again. He was like, I remember, what's up? And then he hit me and he was like, congrats on the album. I really F with it. And JID said, in my mind, I'm asking questions like, oh, you heard it? Oh, you know I'm on tour right now and everything? And it just came out as thank you. And then I got up out of there. I walked away and thought about everything I wanted to say to him my whole life. And clearly he didn't say it. And I thought that that's a really interesting thing that happens, you know, and I know it happens outside of, um, you know, celebrity. I'm sure we've all had those moments where there's, you know, somebody we got a crush on or, you know, whatever, like where you just kind of you kind of stall out. But, um, you know, for you, first of all, I mean, any thoughts on on what the significance of Jay-Z and JID meeting?
0: Well, uh, first of all, I, th- I think it's dope because Jay is a billionaire and got multi-businesses going and is married to Beyonce and has kids and has got a lot going on in his life. Uh, but the fact that this guy repeatedly shows that he has his finger on the pulse of the culture, I think it's dope. I yeah. think that's super dope. And it doesn't surprise me that someone like Jid would, would, would land on his radar because f- for the same reasons we love him. Also, you know, clearly Cole and like th- that, that, that affinity, but, but, you know, um, Jay, I've seen reports is up on Mahami and like people who like, you know, a lot of like serious hip hop heads are up on, like he really is in those trenches when it comes to us. So that, that part is dope to me, but I thought the story was funny for the reasons you pointed out, you know, I have a story. So Prince is one of my favorite artists of all time. Um, and I was at this, this spot in New York City called Madam X. This is back in like 1997, 98. Um, so um, it's all red. And my boys and I are there. And they, they always play joints there, lounge music and stuff like that. But then they start playing this crazy Prince set. And they're playing super deep album cuts like the Ballad of Dorothy, Dorothy Parker and stuff like that from and times. And I'm like, yo, what's going on? Like, is Prince in here or something? Like, just jokingly, Right. So my guy gets up and goes to the bathroom. He's like, yo, I I hear Prince is here. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, man. Like, I think these dudes are trying to wind me up because they know what a Prince stan I am. And he's like, nah, man, for real. Like, that's what I heard. So I get up and I go to the bathroom and I'm thinking about all these things that I'm going to say to Prince if I see him. You know, again, I just become an entertainment lawyer and Prince had just gotten out of his deal with EMI. Shout out to Londell McMillan, now owner of The Source, who got him, he was the emancipator, Prince called him. But I, I'm competitive and I'm like thinking, yeah, you know, uh, I'm gonna see Prince, I'm like, yo, when you need another entertainment lawyer, you know, you come to me, come to the best, like, you know, I, I got my swag on, right? And as I'm coming from the bathroom, I see this figure just floating through the air, right? Cause Prince, his feet didn't touch the ground, man. This dude just floated through the air. And so I see him and I'm like, oh my God, that's Prince, right? And it's like a movie where, you know, the crowd just parts and it's in slow motion and we go and we're face to face. And I get to him and I'm preparing to say all this stuff and I open my mouth and out of my mouth comes, you're my hero. And <laughs> dude, I've never thought that about anyone. I've never said that to anyone. And so, um, and he looks at me like, and, and and he smiles at me and nods and like you know floats away and I'm like ah man this is crazy so <laughs> uh, but that was my uh, that was my Prince story so I relate to Jid man and and that desire to like meet your 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 hero and tell them and say all these things and appear cool and all that man but we all melt and I thought it was dope that Jid who's now pretty established right like he doesn't have that Grammy nomination but selling out multiple shows and he UFC got a billion like,
1: billion streams with imagine dragons like he's breaking exactly
0: yeah he's like that guy and he's still like fanning out so I, I thought it was dope and really cool and humble for him to acknowledge that too you know
1: it's happened to me two times in my life much like you was both times was in a hallway and um you know ambrosia for head sent me to the Soundset fest in 2019 and dmx and just blaze were in a hotel bar and i was sitting with You know, um, some of my some of our favorite people that that you and I have gotten to know over the years, Richie Abbott and Sean Sotero, you know, um, and my man Andres Tardio. Like we're all sitting there having drinks, just carrying on Jake Rohn, other other writers and journalists and people in media and over at the bar, some of the artists. And DMX was there in a Randy Moss jersey from Minnesota, like the, the right throwback for the right time in the city. And I happened to use the restroom and X was, you know coming from the hallway i'm going down in towards the bathroom pause and uh i see i see dmx and i don't know what to say like he's a very important artist to me and, and meant a lot to me especially you know in, in 98 early 2000s and i just looked at him and i went and i saluted him and <laughs> x x you know had, had done some some parting that night and he stopped And he looked at me and he did the exact same thing. (laughs) And it was cool. It was, it was cool because, you know, I didn't, I didn't need to drag him away from what he was doing. Um, But obviously like afterwards, I'm like, man, I would have loved to have just better verbalized what his music meant to me, especially now, you know, he's not here. And the very similar time with Mike Tomlin, I'm a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I was up at the Steelers office one time with my dad, my dad, uh, owns a picture framing business and hangs artwork and he was like yo you want to ride with me and hang some artwork maybe see a Steeler or two and the Steelers were having a rough season I think it was 2013 and I walked down the hallway and it's just me and Mike Tomlin and they had won their like first game in the season against the Jets and I looked at Mike Tomlin and my voice probably kind of squeaked and I was like good game coach and (laughs) but Mike Tomlin nodded and then for like The next day, I was like, yo, am I corny for calling him coach? Like, I don't play for this deal. But I think it's a sign of respect. But those are my two awkward ones.
0: Yeah, nah, for sure, man. Coach is the right move. No, that's dope. dope. (laughs) Well, one other quick um, news story before we get into some new music happenings is an unfortunate one. Um, We reported on this. A, f- a couple of years ago. I can't, I can't remember what the exact year was. I'm thinking 2018, 2019, but, um, there was a shootout that happened in happened in Irving Plaza in New York, a venue that I've frequented many, many times. In fact, that reason, um, show that I was just talking about where, you know, I had the conversation with top dot was, uh, was there. Um, and, you know, I've been backstage where this shootout happened. Uh, but, uh, it was between Taxstone, um, who's, um, you know, a podcast personality, and um, you know, and also Troy Av, and it ended up in someone dying. The bodyguard for um, Banger, Troy Av, yeah. Banger, Ronald McFadder, Troy Av was shot, as well as I think four or five other people. Well, Taxstone was found guilty of of that shooting um, and the killing, and um, is awaiting sentencing. But you know, these kind of tragedies. Are not something we like reporting on, but you know is something that's happening in the culture that affects people we've covered, and so definitely gotta like um, yeah provide that news.
1: Sean Sotero, who I just mentioned, has been doing a lot of frontline reporting um, on that, and you know explained why um, you know found guilty of manslaughter versus other other charges. But yeah, that's a case that I've 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 checked out a little bit, but um, yeah, just just kind of a, a dark news update.
0: Yeah, um, but, you know, so moving on to new music events, um, a couple things I want to talk about before I turn it over to you is so Tony, 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 um, led by Rafael Sadiq, uh, it just put out an announcement. They are coming back on a reunion. I've never seen him. I've seen I've seen Rafael Sadiq uh, Me before. Too. And, Me you too. know, folks might know that, you know, he played a pretty instrumental um, role in D'Angelo's first album, wrote the song Lady and He has a collaboration called Be Here With Him on his own solo album, but like just a legend. And the three of them together should be amazing. And so looking forward to that. Also, I mentioned this last week, but Larry June and the Alchemist have a new album coming out called The The Escape, The Great Escape. Uh, It's coming out on March 31st. I cannot wait because Alchemist kind of like, you know, Apollo Brown, every year he'll do two or three albums uh, with one MC uh, last year, the rock Marciano joint was incredible year before that, I think it was Freddie Gibbs. He's got Armand uh, hammer. Had, yeah. Yeah. Currency last year too. Uh, but man, um, and Larry June is one of my favorite MCs of the last few years. Like I really kind of latched onto his uh, movement maybe a year or so ago. And like now like, he's just such a smooth kind of throwback laid back MC um, but the great escape documentary shows a lot of footage of them in the studio. So if you want a sneak preview of the album, you'll hear a bunch of cuts that they recorded together. And you'll also see their process. I find it interesting because a lot of Larry June's music sounds like night music to me, but mm-hmm. they, they were in this, like, um, I don't know if it was someone's home or they rented it, but it was all windows overlooking a pool and a beach. And they were recording in the daylight for the most part. Um, you know, and they were like cooking ribs and chicken and everything. It looked really like a real cool hang. But that's coming out, um, you know, next week. And you can catch the documentary on YouTube now, The Great Escape documentary. But what other new music you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's really one big song right now. Um, and we got it atop our playlist. I guess there's there's a couple, I should say. Um, one is, you know, coming off of four albums now, Three Installments of King's Disease, plus the 2021 kind of like uh holiday holiday gift magic hit boy and Nas have a new one. It's called the tide. It's from hit boys, new album, um, which is called uh surfer swim, which is thematic to his record label called surf school. Um, but it's called the tide and it's, it's interesting, you know, it's got a beat change in it. It starts out with kind of a vocal sample. Um, and then it moves and he adds those trap drums and, yeah, we've got it near the top or at the top of our playlist right now. Just those guys' high level of quality. Um, and what's interesting is it coincides with an interview that Hitboy had done with Producers Grind, where he revealed, you know, beyond just like giving beats, they, and I thought it's so interesting that he even knew the exact figure. He was like, there's 54 songs we've done together. Which I think extends back before the first Kings disease. There were a couple of places they had had gotten you know songs in. He's engineered 50 out of 54. So again, just to bring it full circle, you know, we're talking about just just investing in yourself and doing everything and work ethic, all these things. I mean, these these guys are in the studio and Hit Boy is doing the work, you know, on the producer's side and Nas is very obviously doing the work on the MC side. But in that conversation, he explained a little bit why they work so well together. He said, when I work with Nas, it's literally just me and him in there. I'm doing the beats. He's doing the rhymes. And then a lot of times when you work with younger artists, they're going to pull up with like five, six, seven, maybe 10 guys. And I'm really here just to do my job. He says, some people flourish in that. And plenty of times I've had my own sessions with a bunch of people in there. But when you're really trying to cultivate something special, you got to protect that space and that energy. That's why I feel like me and Nas can flow like this because most of the time it's just us in the studio. And I remember speaking to Nas, um, 2010 and Damian Marley, I was interviewing, I interviewed Nas and I interviewed Damian a few times and that was the case back then too. I mean, Nas, you want to talk about just kind of keeping it focused, keeping it low key. That's something he's always done. And, you know, there's a lot of fans out there that really believe these, this KD series is, is some of the best, but, um, definitely check that out on on uh, hit Boy's album he has currency he's got dom kennedy uh surfer Drown, by the way it's called and um he's got uh alchemist is on there they did a song together um just some different people so 100 percent, check that out it was dope uh hit boy reacted to our coverage of the song on the album and said thank you always love when the artists receive um the efforts that you and i do to show love so yeah you, um for sure you one, have another song.
0: Th- well, one oh. other interesting thing that Hit Boy said uh, uh, for me was, he said, "It ain't no bunch of outside opinions and people throwing off the zone we in." Which you know, again, like even speaks to that J Cole notion of not having people like you know, you know, and, and raps to provide negativity. So it's just it's just interesting how common this element seems to be. Mm. Yeah, the other song um, that dropped, which is on our playlist as well, is uh, Lloyd Banks re- released a song. With method man called 101 razors and it's just another example where steel sharpens steel you know um Lloyd Banks is one of those guys who sneakily puts out like a project every you know year or two it's always quality consistent you know you know what you're going to get uh but he always delivers and I think this song is a real good indication of what we might expect if he's got a full project coming
1: Definitely. I mean, and meth, uh, you know, I think you and I have both talked to meth of just what a fan of MCZ is. I know you did. You did an interview with him in 2015, where he spoke about Sean Price and MF Doom and, you know, some of these artists that were really inspirational to him well into his career. And I know that meth has been, you know, a huge fan of just like true bar Smiths and like punchline guys, you know, rj Payne and um you know and and look no further than the plk the punchline king self-proclaimed himself lloyd banks so this is a really cool collaboration and uh yeah i'm i'm really excited and should do a lot for both of these guys
0: yeah man Yeah, yeah it should be super dope so with that said what's your song of the week so you know i i specifically held it for here but mr fab put out
1: a new album called I am spelled E-Y-E-A-M. Um, have you ever in your life seen a Mr. Fab concert? No, I have not. So you and I were talking about South by Southwest. He did the 2011 hip hop DX showcase um, and absolutely tore it down. I mean, Mr. Fab is one of the best live performers I've ever seen um, freestyle off the dome stuff. He does crowd work similar to supernatural, you know, can, can rap about things in the crowd, the energy of that night was so insane. And it wasn't, it uh, wasn't the shiner box or the Lone Star beers talking. It was just a truly great show. Actually, Nardwar popped up Diplo. We had yellow wolf perform. It was a great, it was one of my favorite South by showcases that I was a part of. Um, so I've always been a fan of, of fab the MC and usually every year he does a sway in the morning freestyle. That's always among the best. So we put an album out and Fab, if you've never listened to a Mr. Fab album or you haven't in some time, check this album out. It is personal. It is very well produced. It has a million quotables on it. And he's got a song on there called Never 12, um, which is, you know, one of... It's, actually, I'll just say it. It's my favorite song that came out this week. So I have to uh, have to give that props. But on that album, um, he's got MERS on there um, and some other people. It's just, it's worth checking out. But... What about you? That's
0: dope. That's dope. Uh yeah, man. I've definitely been a huge fan of Mr. Fab's freestyles. Those, like you said, those sway ones have been not just the best of the year, but some of the best ever, I think. Uh, and always off the top. Like it's yep. just he's mind blowing. So for me, uh, you know, I just finished the last episode, the series finale of the Wu-Tang clan show, Wu-Tang and American Saga, uh, the other day. And um, no spoilers, but there is um there was something that made me hear shadow boxing as many times as I've heard it before in a different way, especially mass first. Um, and so it, it resonated with me differently this week. So uh, I'm gonna go with the geniuses, uh shadow boxing.
1: Absolutely, man. That's you. You sent it to me this week on a text and I love that liquid swords album. And oddly enough, you know, uh, Benny, the butcher of French Montana and DJ drama kind of did Uh, you know we used to call it bridging the gap but like they made an homage this year to shadow boxing it's called and this lets you know right here the song is called rizza so for all you woo fans or folks that like homage that way check that one out too
0: that's dope all right man always a pleasure you 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 held up for a dude who's sick man
1: absolutely yeah i'm gonna go to bed i'm gonna drink tea and i'm gonna do all this work so it's all good man but i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I wish everyone out there a good weekend, good week ahead. And, you know, until we do it again.
0: For sure. hope you feel better, man. Thank you, man. Peace. Peace.